The sermon text this morning is from the book of Psalm, chapter 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them their anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Well, if you've been with us the past several weeks, you'll know that we've been on a pilgrimage of sorts with the sons of Korah and the book of Psalms. They've given us words to cry out to God in times of hardship down in the valley, times when you suffer under the oppression and lies of other people, times when the bitter providences of life leave you wondering, Lord, where are you? Are you even there? They've taken us through that dark valley and showed us how to keep clinging to God by faith, longing for his presence. There's been a steadily growing hope with each psalm. In Psalm 43, verse 3, the psalmist pleads with God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. He, He hasn't reached the summit Yet he's on his way, but he needs the Lord to guide him. He says in Psalm 46 that even if the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we shouldn't fear because God is our refuge. Even if the world should be unmade, it will be made anew, revealing a city, the holy habitation of the Most High. That's where the psalmist has arrived this morning in Psalm 48, the holy mountain of God and the city of God that sits atop it. It is the city of the great king, the city of the Lord of hosts, and its glory reflects the God who dwells there. The psalmist has come home, and he invites his readers to come with him. He wants their next generation to know, to know and rejoice in this God and the city where he dwells. Well, the city is none other than the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem of the psalmist's day. Yet at the same time, he points to future generations and the new Jerusalem to come at a time when God's praise reaches to the ends of the earth. So I'd like to look this morning at our God in Zion. He is a fortress for his people. Second, a terror for his enemies 
And last, a joy to be heralded to the ends of the earth. So first, first, God in Zion is a fortress for his people. Look at verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. The psalmist, he is overjoyed to describe this city because it reflects the God, the great God who has made his dwelling there in that city. He says the mountain is beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So this description is very interesting. It both locates Jerusalem in the historical setting that, is, uh, that this psalm was written, but it also speaks prophetically of things to come. First, what is Zion? Jeremy has recently introduced our church to a song, We Shall Feast in, in the, the House of Zion. What, what are we singing about? Well, first, the name of the mountains, Zion, that's where Jerusalem sits. The names are used interchangeably. The first occurrence we have of Zion in the Bible is 2 Samuel 5. David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. The city of David, Jerusalem, is on Mount Zion. The psalmist calls it the city of our God. It's God's city. It's his holy mountain because that's where the temple was. The psalmist speaks of the temple in verse 9. The temple was the center of Israel's worship. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the most holy place. The Ark represented the very presence of God. In fact, it's described as God's throne. Moses wrote, the Lord sits enthroned on the cherubim. So we know on the one hand that God's throne is in heaven. He can't be contained by the entire universe. Nevertheless, he chose to especially make his presence known to his people and the temple in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, in a sense, was, was the capital of God's kingdom on earth. This is where they heard from God. This is where pilgrims would travel to worship. This is where they expected that the Messiah would reveal himself. This is where atonement for their sins was made when, when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Samuel described it as the stronghold of Zion. That's just another word for fortress or citadel. It's, it's where you go in times of danger, times of distress. When the surrounding villages are about to be pillaged, you fly to the fortress for safety. That's what Zion was. And the psalmist says that's what God is for his people. That's how he's revealed himself. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. It was true of the actual physical city, but it points to the spiritual. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So who do you understand the Lord to be? Is he someone you can run to for safety? Is he a place of refuge, a place to hide, a place to find shelter when the storms of life are raging overhead? A place of comfort and provision where there's a meal and a warm bed. A place where you are welcomed home, even though you feel utterly undeserving to find a place at the table. 
Is that how you see the Lord? You think of the psalmist calling all Israel to worship in the singing of this psalm. You look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. So, so there they are. They're in the temple. They are worshiping God. They're thinking back on his unfailing love for them, bound by covenant. All that he had done to bring them there as a people. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and he split the Red Sea so they could escape. He conquered the peoples of Canaan. He gave them the land through countless deliverances from their own sinful ways to the establishment of the royal house of David and his city. And now the temple where God dwells with his people. The psalmist says in verse 8, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. So he can recall the awesome deeds of the Lord in the past, from years gone by, and he's seen them in his own lifetime. He's seen Jerusalem under threat, yet it still stands. Time and time again, the Lord has delivered them. What about you? How would you recount God's redemptive love in your own life? How has he been a fortress for you? And would you describe his love as steadfast? Do you doubt it? The great king invites you. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because for us, something greater than the temple is here. God's presence no longer dwells in a building or in an ark of wood, but in a person, namely the great king of the city, the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers himself as your fortress. He is faithful and loyal, a towering citadel where we can find forgiveness from our sins and shelter and safety. Verse 10 says, the right hand of God is filled with righteousness. And no, that is not a reason to flee from him. No, it's actually something to rejoice over. His judgments are just. The psalmist says, let Mount Zion be glad. Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, offers you a refuge in his righteousness. In fact, he clothes you in it. Are you resting there? Do you have a home in this city? Brother and sister in Christ, you should be very familiar with this stronghold. You should know its architecture well. The psalmist invites us. He says, walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. You should know this fortress like you know your hometown. Because you're a citizen of this city. Do you believe that? Verses 12 through 13 are a good encouragement to make use of your sanctified imagination and ponder the greatness of God. So you just picture a well-fortified city. This is what God is for you. Just picture it. You see its walls and its towers. They are unscalable. And the city is breathtakingly beautiful and imposing, surpassing the most spectacular city you've ever visited. And then you picture yourself within it. You are completely secure. You're going about your work. You're tending a garden. You're raising kids. You're driving your car. 
You're doing all that you do content, knowing you dwell in the city of the great king and you live under his protection. Think about such things. Side note here, if you want to clean up your thought life, you know, one way to kill something is to promote the growth of something else. So if you make it a discipline, a reflex in the idle moments of your life to think on good, wholesome, noble things that lift your mind to God, that's going to be a great help to you. We have such a picture here in this psalm. Well, rejoicing in God as our fortress does not mean that our security is never threatened. It doesn't mean that trials will never come. It doesn't mean that we won't be harassed by the enemies of God or still struggle with our sins. In fact, the psalmist argues that God is a fortress for his people by pointing out the hostility of their enemies. And those enemies have a drastically different reaction to the city of God. So let's look at that now. God in Zion is a terror for his enemies. He says, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. So they're they're actually mounting an attack against the city. That should remind you of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's a picture of the world's animosity towards God and his people down through the ages. This multinational group of kings, they come together and they advance on the city of God. But notice what happens. As soon as they catch a sight of it, they're seized with terror. They're so afraid, they're trembling. And not just fear, but anguish and pain, agony, like a woman in labor. That should remind us of the curse. It also reminds you of the return of Christ. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is the city of the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, that's the Lord of armies. If you remember that line from the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth, his name. That's what this means, the Lord of hosts. So again, notice the different reactions. These kings, they see the city of God and they're overcome with panic and they run away. The people of God see it and they are comforted. They rejoice because they know they have a fortress in such a God. Well, that's how it's going to shake out one day. You either come to God humble, recognizing your need for him, clinging to him for mercy and refuge and finding him to be just that. Or you come proud, wise in your own eyes, asserting your own authority, thinking to seat yourself on the throne of your life. And if not brazenly adversarial towards God, you've never thanked him. You're ungrateful. You're the Lord of your own life. That's not how you want to come to the city of God. You will not find mercy, but wrath. If that's you, if you're not a Christian, there is a way you can be reconciled to God. The great king of the city has gone outside of the city. And he has laid down his life in the stead of rebels like you. 
If you turn from your sins and trust in him as your fortress, you will be saved. You don't want to be numbered with those kings. Do you see how God defeats his, his enemies with overwhelming ease? Just by the sight of him. Or merely the east wind that shatters these ships. Great, long, capable ships all the way from Tarshish of Spain on the western side of the Mediterranean dashed to pieces. The psalmist could point to historical examples of the days of King Jehoshaphat. A great multitude came against him, but they were routed by God when the Korahites went before Israel's army singing. Or you think of the defeat of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in Hezekiah's day. The Lord says plainly, he shall not come into this city. Or shoot an arrow there. Or come before it with a shield. Or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home. Have you ever read how Jesus defeats the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians? It says, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. He's gone. Overwhelming ease. So friends, we need not fear. The nations may rage. Jesus says we will be hated by all nations for his name's sake. Some of us they will kill. But God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And God has set a day for his return. The city of the Lord of hosts will be established forever. And until then, our battle, as Paul writes, is not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the psalmist, he knew this battle too. It's curious that the psalmist says Mount Zion is in the far north. You know, if you look at a map of Jerusalem, it doesn't really seem to be in the far north. Well, this is one example where it really helps to have several different English translations of the Bible on your shelf so you can compare them. The ESV that we read publicly isn't wrong, but uh, there's another way you can translate that Hebrew phrase that I, I think is better at arriving at the author's intended meaning. The, the New International Version, for example, says the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion. And that's, that's very different. Well, Zaphon is Hebrew for north. Zaphon was the name of a mountain on the northern border of the Holy Land in modern day of Syria and Turkey, right there on the border. It was revered by the Canaanites because they believed their god Baal and actually all other gods lived on top of it. We actually have Canaanite texts where they call Zaphon a lovely, mighty mountain or Baal's holy mountain or his beautiful hill. Now, why would the psalmist use similar descriptions for the Lord and his mountain? It's intentional. 
He's saying Yahweh is greater than Baal. He's saying where the Lord dwells is better than where Baal dwells. A literal translation of that phrase in verse 2 would be Mount Zion is the topmost peak of Zaphon. He's saying Zion completely dominates that other mountain, completely overshadows it. He's saying Zion is the real dwelling place for God, not Zaphon. Yahweh reigns supreme over Baal and all other gods. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised and down with Baal and all demonic idolatry. That's what he's saying. You think for a moment, who else in scripture is described as wanting to set up his throne on the top of a mountain? Satan. Both Ezekiel and Isaiah write about these proud pagan kings, likening them to Satan himself. Isaiah writes, you said in your heart, your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Or you could say on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Well, of course, the Lord casts the Babylonian king down. Even as he did Satan, the throne is God's alone. That mountaintop is God's. Satan, he is always wickedly mimicking the good designs of God. Twisting them, corrupting them, anything beautiful, he he disfigures, he makes a counterfeit. Well, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, namely sin. So brothers and sisters, the devil, he's got nothing left to say to you. He's got no accusations to hurl. He will try, but we take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. His barbed shafts can no longer get to our hearts. God has disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's Colossians chapter 2. So when sin and death and the devil assembled against you, the king of the city, he came out of the city and he provided you refuge. He faced that advancing army instead of you. And he laid down his life. And then three days later, he got back up. Can you imagine the terror of his enemies? The man you murdered, he's up walking around. Friends, the next generation needs to know because there's no other God like him. Look at his mountain. Look at his city. See what a fortress he is for his people. Until the return of the king, this is our call. To speak of him until his praise reaches to the ends of the earth. So finally, let's look at that. God in Zion is a joy to be heralded. Again, that phrase in verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen. So, could you say that with the psalmist? Can you testify to your own life being spared, though a horde of enemies came against you? Have you seen the Lord come to your aid in time of great 
trouble. Maybe you'd say, you know, there was a time when I was harassed by the devil himself, but God came to my rescue. How many times has he provided the help you desperately needed? How many times has he proven himself to be your fortress? Surely we have seen grace upon grace. We need to tell each other and remind each other how we have seen the faithfulness of God in the face of evil and through the trials of this life. That's what Israel did in the midst of the temple. And isn't that why we gather every Sunday here? To remind ourselves how impregnable they have been for us. Those walls, those city walls. Those ramparts reflect the one who built them. So we should know him well in order to joyfully, sacrificially tell others about him. This age will draw to an end. The psalmist speaks of the city of God being the joy of all the earth. And a time when the praises of God reach to the ends of the earth, that still awaits fulfillment. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So the psalmist seems to envision a future city. He says its mountain is beautiful in elevation. But Mount Zion, it wasn't the tallest mountain in the region. Psalm 46 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. But as Philip pointed out a few Sundays ago, Jerusalem has no river. But in the book of Revelation, it does. The psalmist, like Abraham before him, who who dwelt in a mere tent, is looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jerusalem of the psalmist's day points beyond itself to a coming city and a coming mountain of God where he will dwell with his people and all nations will flock to it, not in war, but in worship. Isaiah writes, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This vision is the fulfillment of the mission Jesus sent the the church to accomplish. To make disciples of all nations until the praises of God reach the ends of the earth. So the Gentiles were intended from the very beginning to have a place in the city of God. The new Jerusalem of Revelation 21 will be the joy of all the earth. If you remember what was promised to Abraham, land and blessing. Well, we receive those promises by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why would a city cause such joy? Why should it stir your heart? Because it's the city of God. You think about it. You have a home in this promised city. For all who believe. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now maybe that doesn't thrill your heart the way it should. There's probably a lot we could learn from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world whose personal property is not so secure. 
whose homes have been burned, their cars stolen, their, their lives regularly at risk, that would probably make you more eager for the new heavens and the new earth, wouldn't it? The confidence and trust we place in our possessions, it's, it's really staggering. Because it's, it's all fleeting. It would be a good thing to go out and stand in your front yard and look at your house and look at your car and say, you will be owned by someone else. It would be good for your heart. All that you have will pass into others' hands. All that we cherish will pass away. But because I know I'm a citizen of the city of God to come, I don't have to hold on so tight to the city of man. I can live generously and sacrificially, yes, even joyfully, because my hope is set elsewhere. I can even willingly suffer for the great king because he and his city are so precious and they're secure. The author of Hebrews urges us, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Christians in America need to hear that so much. This is not our home. And, and though we should love America and seek its good because this is where God has put us, America is not the new Israel. America is not the promised land. It's not our ultimate home. And another thing, we shouldn't look for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's not our hope. Christ has come and he dwells within us by his spirit. He will guide us forever. That's the last verse in 14. Through faith in him, we, the church, are the temple of God. Jesus said we are a city set on a hill and we've got a job to do to make much of the king and to tell the next generation until his praises reach the ends of the earth. So friends, what a fortress we have in the God of Zion. Imagine that coming day, the welcome we will receive within those strong walls when the king himself spreads a table for us. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we will forever be in the presence of God. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Be strengthened by this. Let's take a few moments to reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us. Oh Lord, please grow us in faith. Anchor us in this hope of the coming great king and his city. Would you minister to your people? Would you strengthen them in the midst of their trials? Knowing we have such a hope, such a fortress in you. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.